we're going to open our Bibles, if you have them, and we are going to read, and I'm going to read a, an extended passage here, so we're going to take on a big chunk this morning uh, out of this book that we're studying, the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to begin reading in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. This is the Word of God. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was, a faith, was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. That first section of chapter 3 is a continuation of a thought that we've bumped into now several times, and that thought is that Jesus is superior. Can you imagine a Jewish person hearing what we just read, that the, the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is greater than Moses, because Moses was about as great as they came. They were waiting on a Messiah to come, one who would be like Moses, be a prophet like Moses. And so the writer is saying, this is Jesus. The Messiah is Jesus. Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior to Moses. And then he continues. He says, so as the Holy Spirit says, uh, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. If we have come to share in Christ, if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first, as has been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Just a few more verses. You still awake? Verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now, we who have believed enter that rest just as God said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. 
For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, it still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God, again, set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David. As was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Is that all clear? Good. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) Well, we're going to dive back into the book of Hebrews, as is obvious. We've been noting now for several weeks that the recipients of this letter are in some danger, in some difficulty. Um, they've been experiencing persecution just because they have decided to claim that Jesus is their Messiah. They've been experiencing financial hardships. They're wondering, God, why exactly is this happening to us? Why are things so difficult when all we're trying to do is follow Jesus? Uh, These people are weary. Uh, They're physically weary. They're emotionally weary. They're spiritually weary. They're so weary, in fact, that some are in danger of drifting away from the faith. And by doing so, they are missing and will miss entering into God's eternal Sabbath because that's the big piece of what's being talked about here. And so the, writers of Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews writes to these folks and he talks to them about this subject of rest. In fact, he mentions nine times in these verses this matter of rest. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the subject of rest. I suspect that there has never been a culture or probably a people that needed rest more or understood rest less than we do. It's interesting to me that one of the most frequent comments that people make, if you say to them, hey, how you doing? What do they usually say? Well, you know, things are great, but man, they're busy. Wow, they are busy. Uh, work is busy, kids' schedules are busy, the calendar is full, and often we are weary and we don't even know why, but we should. In these verses, we're going to see that rest is absolutely vitally important to us, spiritually, emotionally, physically. Rest also comes in a variety of forms. We're going to see that, and we're going to see the obvious conclusion, which is that Jesus is the key to finding what God calls a true Sabbath rest. That's where we're going. But before we go any further, we'd better rest for a moment and pray. Let's pray together. Father God, would you be our teacher? Would your spirit fill us? Would you give us attentive hearts and attentive minds so that we can grow in our faith and in our entrance into this rest that you provide, Jesus? Would you teach us? We pray in your name. Amen. So first, the importance of rest. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, the writer quotes Psalm 95 
He says, as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Psalm 95, if you know anything about it, is a psalm that is remembering when God delivered the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt. The Jews were on their way to Canaan. They were on their way to this land that God had promised them. And along the way, again and again and again and again, it's a great story, but there's a repetitive theme in it. Uh, They rebel. Uh, They turn away from God. Uh, They complain about water. They complain about food. They complain about their enemies. They even say, we'd be better off back in Egypt living as slaves than we are here in this wilderness. So they were incredibly ungrateful. They were incredibly disobedient. And they were incredibly faithless. And so God punishes them. And his punishment is that he gives them no rest. And that sounds maybe at first like maybe not such a a big deal. But understand the Bible's claim is that Sabbath or rest is where God already is. He has rested from his work. And that's where he wants to bring us into Sabbath, into rest, into shalom, into peace. And so this thing of rest is actually, if you understand it properly, biblically, it is a fundamental need of the human spirit, the human soul. It's a fundamental need of yours and mine. You're probably aware that Sabbath or rest is one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, In our liturgy this morning, we were reminded of that. It certainly could be argued that this is one of the commandments that in our culture we break most often. The fact that God commands Sabbath, commands rest, and puts that command right there with honoring him, having no gods other than him, uh, right there with not murdering, not lying, not stealing, not committing adultery, uh, not coveting, that alone tells us that this thing of rest, whether we understand it or not, must be pretty darn important. Rest from labor. Deep spiritual rest. It's interesting, whenever a society encourages or demands all work, no rest, that ultimately is dehumanizing. It's ultimately debilitating to individuals and to cultures. It ultimately produces the opposite of human flourishing, the same way murder or lying or stealing or adultery or coveting does. It's dehumanizing and debilitating. The point is, and I've made it now multiple times, are you getting tired of hearing hearing it? Sabbath is vitally important for you and for me, for human beings. Now, I don't know where our society ranks compared to other cultures and other places or at other times, but I know that in our culture, being overworked and over busy is a huge problem. I've read and heard various observations about this, just like you have. One observation that I've read is uh, that technology has greatly contributed to our obsession with work. Technology has made our work more accessible to us and us more accessible to it. And I think that's very, very true. On Monday, my day off, I was out mountain biking and I'm riding along on a beautiful trail, just amazed by the colors. My phone rings and sometimes I just ignore that. This time I didn't. I looked and I didn't recognize the number. It was strange. And it was somebody calling me from Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland, not not Edinburgh, you know, Mississippi or somewhere. (laughs) 
And so I, I took the call. It was just a brief call. But then that call prompted me looking at messages and checking my email. And the next thing I know, I'm working out in the middle of nowhere. Technology tends to kind of put work in our mind and keep it there. Technology kind of shrinks the world in which we work. Whatever product you produce and work, whatever service you happen to be providing, you are now competing with the entire world, not your neighborhood, not your town, not your city, not your state, not your country. You're competing with the whole world. And for all these kinds of reasons, while technology is certainly a blessing, it is also a curse. It has helped to create a work-dominant mentality so that work is always with us. And technology really isn't the only thing to blame for our work-obsessed culture. Uh, there are probably many factors that we could list. One more, I think, might be uh, even more to blame. In our culture, we are, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we're, we're a very independent, individualistic uh, accomplishment-driven culture. I mentioned this last week that when you want to recommend yourself or introduce yourself to someone these days, you want to identify yourself. Uh, in some cultures, once upon a time, you would do it this way. Hi, I'm Dwayne Corey. I'm the son of Paul Corey. Or you, you might have said, hi, I'm the daughter or the wife of so-and-so, the daughter or the daughter of such-and-such. You know, you would identify yourself, place yourself within a family, in other words, family was your chief means of identification, but not in our culture. Our culture is probably the, the most individualistic culture in history. In our culture, we have freed people from assigned social roles based on their family. And that's probably a good thing in many ways. You see, now you become who you want to become. Your value, your identity, your significance are things you earn. They're things that you achieve. You do this on your own. Whose son or daughter you are matters very little in our society. That's not how we grade anymore. In our society, you have to get out there and make something happen. And that means that our relationship with work or what we do is all important because it defines us. Once upon a time, work was what you did to put food on the table, to provide for your family. But now, work or what you do, what you achieve, what you perform, what you teach, what you research, what you parent, what you pastor, what you sell, your individual achievement is what matters. It's what defines you, identifies you to others. And this is why parents obsess over their children getting every possible advantage, leg up, if you will, so that their kids can find their place to excel, their place to achieve, their place to create an identity for themselves. And so parents put their kids in everything, everything, dance lessons, soccer teams, riding schools, uh, scouting, tutoring, baseball, basketball, football, any kind of ball, swimming, mountain biking, track, you name it, the list is endless. Parents want to maximize their children's developmental capacity and help their kids find their groove, their lane to run in, their place to excel. And here's the deal. Overparenting is very closely related to overwork. 
In fact, family has become the platform to get the child every advantage he or she needs so that that child can succeed and accomplish and achieve individually. And this is vital because work is what now gives you your value in our culture. What you do and how you do it defines whether you are a success or not. And so parents are just full up doing their own work, trying to create or maintain some kind of identity, while at the same time doing everything they can to help their progeny succeed as well. Understandably, there has probably never been a more workaholic culture in history than ours. The result, we're tired. (laughs) I mean, we are stressed. We are anxious. We know very little about Sabbath or peace or shalom. Even when we try to rest or relax, we we tend to hear this little voice, this is costing you. You're getting behind. You better not rest too long. Friends, we're a restless society. Do you see why this subject matters? You see why rest is important? Something else I think we see in this passage is that there are different kinds of rest. I don't know if you noticed, but in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18, and Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, the rest referred to is the rest of entering into the promised land, the rest that was promised to the Israelites. And God says, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. God was warning Israel in the wilderness, saying, if you keep rebelling against me, if you keep being unfaithful and unbelieving and untrusting and stiff-necked and hard-hearted and rebellious, that you will not then enter the promised land. Question, why was entering the promised land equivalent to entering into God's rest? You kind of have to back up a step and remember the history just a bit. Israel was, of course, a nation of slaves before they came out of Egypt. In Egypt, they worked all the time. If you're a slave, that's what you do. You work all the time. And so coming into the promised land would for them have been an opportunity for some physical rest. It would have been an opportunity for certainly social peace. It would have been an opportunity to see God's complete provision for them. Do you remember how the promised land was described? A land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Well, that's that's a rich word picture a land flowing with milk and honey meaning it would be full of God's provision for them they would have all they need in the promised land precisely because God would see to it God would be their provider rather than them having to be a provider a slave for the people in particular the Pharaoh of Egypt Now we come to Deuteronomy chapter 14, 15, and 16, and God commands the Israelites to take time off when they come into the promised land. This is interesting. Three times a year after the harvest, they are to attend festivals, celebrations. They're to leave their farms, leave their villages, uh, leave their families. Three times a year, all your men, it says, must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. That, of course, became Jerusalem. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, why? What is this about? Why rest? Why stop working? Why leave your family? Why go to a festival? 
What's important, we see that when they stop working, it's not empty time. It's not time in a vacuum. It's actually time full of activity, gathered activity. Activity together with others where they, where they feast, where they give thanks, where they rest from work, where they together worship God, where they remember all that God has done for them. Festival resting was their way of saying, I'm not a cog in a machine. I'm not a slave. I'm, I don't have a, a taskmaster like that anymore. I find my identity and my freedom and my provision in God and God alone. I'm not a slave. I'm a child of God. And so you see, resting from work and normal routines was one type of rest where when they rested, they were actually being like God because God was already resting, already Sabbathing and inviting others into that. They were trusting God, believing God, believing his promises. But rest, you see, is used in, in yet another way here in this passage. I would say uh, even a deeper and perhaps even more important way. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the Israelites did not enter God's rest because of their unbelief. And then it says, this is Hebrews 4.1, it says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Remember the rest for the Israelites was entering the promised land. They, they didn't enter uh, God's rest. They didn't enter the promised land because of unbelief. So what kind of rest is this that still stands, that is still available? The writer of Hebrews says uh, in Hebrews 4.9, he says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. That's an interesting phrase, rest from his own work, just as God did from his. You know, when you go back and you read the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that rest for God had a lot to do uh, with looking at what he had made and seeing that it was good. Every day there's a little pause where God looks at what's been made and he says, it's good. It's good. And then the seventh day comes and, and God rests from all his labors, we're told. And what does he do? Well, he observes that all of creation, it's good. Um, God is fully, and fully satisfied with what he has done and it is completed and it is good. So much so that he was able to lay it down and cease from those labors and declare the seventh day Holy, that's as good as it gets, holiness. The point is this, when God rested, there was peace. When God rested, there was shalom, there was satisfaction, uh, there was completed wholeness, a, a clear sense that his work was good and acceptable. Nothing needed to be added to it. That rest of God, that peace and shalom is the rest that we need. That's more than just ceasing from our labors. Let's talk about this for a moment. There's a writer, her name is Judith Shulovitz, a Jewish woman, could you guess? She wrote a book called The World of Sabbath. She actually grew up in a Jewish home, and when she became a teenager, she kind of rebelled against all of that, wanted nothing to do with it, especially Jewish Sabbath observance. But then she found, uh, as time went on, that there was a problem in her busy, 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 busy life. And she writes these words. She says, my mood would darken every weekend. 
My normal leisure routines left me feeling impossibly restless. And then I began to do something that as a teenager, profoundly put off by her religious education, I could never have imagined wanting to do. I began dropping in on a nearby synagogue. Finally, I began to develop a theory for my condition. I was suffering from a lack of Sabbath rest. Now, I don't know at all that this uh, lady is a, is a believer. In fact, I would presume she's not a follower of Jesus. But she has observed something in her personal reflections that get very, gets very close to the gospel. This is what she says. There's ample evidence that our relationship to work is seriously out of whack. So let me argue on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism reasonably in check for thousands and thousands of years. Most people, she says, believe that all you have to do to rest is stop working. The inventors of Sabbath understood, though, that it was a much more complicated undertaking to rest. You cannot downshift casually or easily. This is why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exacting and intentional. Intentional. If you know anything about Puritans or, for that matter, Jewish Sabbaths, there was a lot of stuff they had to do on the Sabbath. They had to stop doing some things, but they had to start doing other things. She says, even our secular and leisure activities, and there she means just about everything we do, hiking, biking, uh, skiing, camping, watching TV, watching football, going to games or kids' activities. I mean, you fill in the blank, right? Even our secular and leisure activities, she says, cannot do for us what Sabbath rituals do. For religious rituals do not exist just to promote togetherness. They are designed, get this, they are designed to convey to us a certain story about who we are. That's quite insightful. The story told by the Sabbath is that of creation. God rested and we rest in order to honor the image of the divine in us, to remind us there is more to us than our work. And then she says, the machinery of self-censorship. That's, that's interesting language. The machinery of self-censorship. That's that inner voice in us that our culture constantly promotes. That's that inner voice in us that tells us, you know what? I'm not good enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm a pretender if you really know me. So I need to do more and achieve more. I need to be more. I'm not good enough. The machinery of self-censorship, she says, must shut down too in order to rest. Stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. Boom. She gets it. Friends, what is the machinery of self-censorship? What is the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach? I'll tell you what it is, since you're asking. <laughs> it's the sin in us. It's the sin that is in this world in which we believe. Do you see the, the implications of what she's saying? She's saying it's one thing to just stop your physical labors. She was doing that in all of her, she called them secular leisure activities, but she wasn't resting because she was believing a lie about herself. 
You see, she realized that she needed something else, something deeper to remind her who she really is. Because she's feeling broken. She feels like a failure when she surveys the landscape of her life. She feels uh, like uh, there's something that she can't fix and get right. What she's feeling is her sin. She's feeling like no matter what she accomplishes, it's never enough. It'll never quite measure up. Friends, that's the restlessness, restlessness underneath our weariness. Unless we can get rest from that, we, we are a slave to our social, our social systems. Or we're a slave to the expectations of others. Or we're a slave to our own expectations, which we can't meet. So how do we get a rest, a deeper rest, a Sabbath rest from that? Truth is... Um, Something very painful has to happen to us before we can get that deeper rest. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. And then he jumps to what at first seems like a a non-related topic. He starts talking about the word of God. He starts talking about God's omniscience, all-knowingness. Uh, The next two verses are famous verses. A lot of people memorize these verses. Uh, You know, we've been talking about rest. That's what the writer of of Hebrews has been talking about. And then all of a sudden, there's this description of God's word. And this is what he writes. He says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. That's the sword that the Romans used, the double-edged sword. It was a short sword. It was made for piercing. It wasn't made for hacking and cutting. It was made for piercing. It was a double-edged sword. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What's he saying? What's he driving at? Why this seeming shift in thought? I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that God's word... Friends, God's word was, is, always will be truth. It dissects us like a scalpel, like a double-edged sword that penetrates deeply. It cuts right to the heart, judging our thoughts and our attitudes. This is one of the reasons that we sinners don't like the word of God. It can be painful to read. What he's also saying is that God himself sees everything, uncovering, it says, and laying bare the truth about all of us. And the truth about all of us is not pretty truth. We all know that if our thoughts, our real motives, all the things we do and don't do that we should, if all these things were fully exposed and fully known, it would not be pretty. We'd feel pretty naked. We'd have no defense, no place to hide. This is why Adam and Eve in the garden were naked and we're told they were not ashamed. It wasn't because they had gorgeous bodies. It was because they were completely at rest and peace with who they were and with who God was. They truly had nothing to hide. They saw who God had made them to be and it was good. And what is more, they saw the one who made them, God, God himself, and he was good. But the minute they sinned, 
the minute they decided he wasn't good enough and they could do better, all of that changed. The minute they decided to be their own Lord and Savior, to make their own decisions, to decide their own fate, to govern their own lives without God, they found out very quickly that they were radically unfit for the task. They couldn't do it. They couldn't hold it together. They couldn't be who they needed to be. They couldn't be God. And friends, every human being knows this deep, deep down. Every human being feels this. Our own deep inadequacy, our own deep need to pretend to be something, to be someone we are not, it grows out of this awareness of our own inadequacy. Adam and Eve knew immediately after they had disobeyed God, they were not worthy. They did not deserve God's love and friendship. They were not okay. That's why they went and hid fig leaves, remember? They tried to cover themselves up. And that's what all of us, all of humanity has been doing ever since. Hiding and covering ourselves with whatever it is we think will make us okay. Good looks, good grades, being popular, being funny, making money, getting rich, being cool, being smart. But deep down we know we hear that accusing voice that never goes away that says to us, you are not who you pretend to be. You are not as good as you appear. You are not as clever as you want people to think you are. You are not as cool, not as smart, not as successful as you pretend. And deep down, we have these feelings of spiritual nakedness, vulnerability, a feeling that if there is a God, if there is a maker, if there is a cosmic, moral, just judge, I am not okay. Not before him. Not a holy, righteous, just God. That is scary stuff. And so at a very deep spiritual level, that place where the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and attitudes of my heart, in that place, I'm very nervous. I'm not at peace. I'm restless, not resting. I'm anxiously busy and driven, and this is why I have no rest, not really. Not until I see this, friends, and understand this about myself can I begin to understand verse 10 of chapter 4. You see, the biblical gospel is what explains this thing in us. Verse 10, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. What's my own work? What's that talking about here? It's a work that, that I'm going to rest from, it says, if I enter God's rest. Tell you what I think. I think that work that's talked about, my work, I think that's my self-justifying work. 
It's work I do to feel good about myself. It's work I do to to give myself an identity that I hope you will like. It's work that I do to justify myself. It's loving others so I can feel good about me or or it's being kind to people so I can be reasonably sure that I'm a good person or it's putting others first so that God will notice or so that God will bless or so that I can be good enough. It's accomplishing things and building my resume So others and God, if there is one, will accept me. You see, when the reason we do the things we do is to get others to like us or get others to approve of us or to gain our own approval or to get God's acceptance, that is just self-justifying work. And when your work is self-justifying, you'll never be able to lay it down. You'll never be able to say it is good and it is finished. Because it never is. Never. Your work is always flawed somehow. It's never completely good. Therefore, it's never completely finished because it's never good enough. (laughs) The really good moral person is usually the most tired person on earth. They can never do enough. They can never stop doing They must keep proving their goodness. Do you see, friends, that the gospel judges both our sins, the wrong things we do, but even our self-justifying goodness? Do you see that? The stuff we do that we think makes us acceptable? And do you see that it's really the self-justifying goodness that's killing you? That gives you no rest in your life whatsoever because you haven't given that up to God and realized that Jesus actually pays the price for that sin too. You see, the Bible judges both ends of this spectrum, sins and our self-justifying goodness. (laughs) So the question, the obvious one that we keep coming to is who's going to deliver us from this mess? Who can give us what we so desperately need, which is deep spiritual rest? And the writer of Hebrews only has one answer to all these questions. And it is what? It's Jesus. Jesus, you see, is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the essence of shalom and peace and rightness with God. He's the God of rest. In Hebrews 4, 3, it says, Now we who have believed enter that rest. Believed what? Believed the gospel. Decided that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm following him. Hebrews 4, 13, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Those words laid bare. Those are scary words. It's actually a Greek word, trachalizomai. It's a very specific word. It paints a word picture. It means to pull back the neck, stretch back the neck so that you could cut the neck of an animal that you're sacrificing. You take an animal, you pull its head back, you cut the neck, you hang it, and you drain the blood out of it. Now it's ready for sacrifice. And the writer uh, wants us to have this picture in our minds. And what he's saying is that before God, you are totally vulnerable, totally guilty. Your neck is pulled back. It's laid bare. And it's a very frightening image. Because you see, if there is a just judge, one who will one day right all wrongs and punish all evil, who dispenses justice fully and fairly, then we are doomed. 
We will have our necks laid bare. We will be judged. Again, who's going to save us from this? The writer of Hebrews tells us, verse 14, says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence That's an interesting way to think of that place where God Almighty sits on the throne. The throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, that's that's not a throne of grace to everyone. It's a throne of grace to those who put faith in and follow Jesus. Then it's forever and always eternally a throne of grace. Well, who's going to save us from our sin and our self-justifying self-righteousness? Well, the great high priest, the one who sits on a throne of grace. You see, Jesus was laid bare on a cross, his neck bent back for sacrifice. Jesus offered the one sacrifice that was sufficient to pay for our sins, past and present and future, so that we could be clothed with his righteousness. Jesus was cut off from the source of rest so that we could have rest so that we could enter in to rest. Jesus did all this and more. And and then he said, do you remember? He said, it is finished. There's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing I can add to it. It is finished. What was finished? The work that every human heart is trying to do, that self-justifying work. No, 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 that's over. That's done. That's paid for. It is finished. That work is judged. That work was never good enough to start with, never could be. Jesus says, I am the one who gives you your identity, not your work. I am the one who gives you your identity. You are mine. I am yours. Here is my work for you, my perfect righteousness. You have that righteousness. Put your faith in me and I will justify you. You don't have to justify yourself. (laughs) And that's kind of the whole loaded message behind what Jesus said one time when he said, come to me, all you who are weary. Anybody weary here of always trying to justify yourself? Oh, just the pastor. Good, good. (laughs) Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this author who we do not know, who wrote the book of Hebrews, who paints so many powerful, wonderful, life-changing pictures of Jesus. We discovered this morning that rest is what we need. And we discovered this morning that rest is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. God, would you deliver us from our efforts to make ourselves be somebody? Would you deliver us from all of our self-justifying efforts to matter? And just, Father, bring us to that place where by faith we accept that we matter because you say so. You died for us, Jesus. 
And may we live out of that truth in ways that, that point people to you, Jesus. Thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.